Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 97.1 FM Talk Podcast. This hour of the Mark Reardon Show is sponsored by Gamma Tree Experts. Your trees deserve the best care. Call Gamma Tree Experts. I'm Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times. Movie critics are always being asked to name their favorite movies, but I don't think anyone has ever asked me about the films that had the greatest influence on me, the movies that made me a movie critic. Gene Siskel, Roger Ebert, if you're of a certain age, I think that age is old at, at this point, you know Siskel and Ebert, two thumbs up, and Matt Singer is with me as we take you into the weekend. He has written a book called Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. Matt Singer, welcome to 97.1 FM Talk in St. Louis. How are you? I'm doing I'm I'm doing oldly. I'm old now, I guess, but I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, first of all, congratulations on the book because this is in my mind when I heard about this last week, I'm like, how in the hell could no one have written this book before this because these guys, as you say sort of in the subheadline, they did change movies forever. Yes. Yes, and uh I felt the same way. I mean, I grew up a huge fan of the show. And always wanted to read a book about them. And um, at a certain point, you look around and you say, well, if nobody else has done it and is going to do it, it might as well be me. And, uh, and that's how it kind of got started. And I, I, I mean, it's the name of the book, but I certainly do think they, they had a huge impact on the world of movies. Well, this interview is you, and it's about Cisco and Eber, but I have to share, I, I, I've said this before to guests, Matt, I, I have this bad habit, just like Joe Biden, I make everything about myself, but I, um, I was a part-time film critic from about 88 until just a couple of years ago, member of uh, Broadcast Film Critics Association or Critics' Choice, and I did a lot of stuff, and I grew up in Chicago. Before their show was syndicated at all, I would watch these guys. And I wanted to do what they did. Then I moved here to St. Louis, and I started seeing movies with a good friend of mine to this day. I mentioned him sometimes, Rick Diner. He's in Las Vegas. We went to movies in the early 80s, Matt. You probably did this with friends. We were just like Siskel and Ebert. We sat around. We saw the movie. We argued about the movies. We gave our own thumbs up. It, it was a lot of fun. But they inspired a lot of people to, uh, to do things that had a passion for movies, didn't they? They sure did. And one of the, you know, it's funny, one of the best parts now about having written the book is when I was a kid watching Siskel and Ebert, to me, it was almost like this incredibly nerdy, geeky thing. I mean, I didn't talk about it uh, at the time when I was in, uh, you know, in middle school is really when I first found the show. Uh, I wasn't like going into school on a Monday after they were on late on Sunday night being like, did you hear what Gene yeah. and Roger had to say about speed. Can you believe what they said about Jurassic? It was this was my little 
secret. You know, it was kind of this thing that I was obsessed with, and I thought I was kind of the only one. And now doing interviews, talking to people, doing book signings, like so many people, like I love hearing that you had the same experience. And I've heard that from so many people that, you know, that grew up all over the country. I've talked to people in who grew up in Montana, in Pennsylvania, uh, all over the place, and they all say the same thing. I watched the show as a kid. And it made me fall in love with movies and it made me fall in love with talking about the movies. And it made me want to be a film critic or a film journalist or a writer. And yeah, there's a whole generation of people like that, like you and me. And I I think it's great. It makes me feel so like so much less alone in the world that there were all these people that were having this shared experience in the eighties and the nineties watching Siskel and Ebert. You know, what's interesting though. You you said something there that kind of um, was very relatable to me because you said you, you had it. It was kind of your own thing. I think for a lot of us, it was like that. I didn't go and tell people I was watching Siskel and Ebert. It was almost like my little secret. And I would record it on my VHS tape when that came around. And I'd want to see, you know, there there was at some point a little crossover. I started reviewing films in the late 80s. And I wanted to see what these guys kind of thought of movies. And then let me play a little audio here because I've always joked over the years about movie critics. Is It's almost like federal law that you have to put a top 10 list together. Steve Martin in number 10 slot. Very charming. Very funny. And Roxanne. Number 9, Stephen Freer. Prick up your ears about a doomed affair. So they would do their top 10 lists every year, and then every critic in the country kind of had to do one, inspired by Siskel and Ebert, right? Oh, I mean, they're, yes. I mean, they're certainly their influence on, I think, I mean, if you want to talk about their influence on film critics, I mean, it's not just specific episodes, specific reviews, specific types of shows. I just think about, like, the way they dress, like, uh, you know, like I almost think of that as like the film critic uh, uniform, the blazer, maybe a V-neck sweater. Like if I'm ever on camera, if I have to go do something in front of people, I mean, it's almost like ingrained in my mind that I have to dress like a film critic, which means dressing like like Gene Siskel or Roger Ebert. I got to get the I got to get the blazer. I got to get a, a V-neck sweater, not a regular neck. It's got to be a V-neck. No, it's got to be a V-neck. Know? You're right about yeah. that. Absolutely. Yeah. Opposable Thumbs is the name of the book, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. Matt Singer is my guest. Let's back up a little bit because I think it's um, there's a tendency to assume that everybody knows who Siskel and Ebert are. We kind of gave a broad definition, but who were these two guys? They were newspaper guys originally in the 1970s in Chicago, right? That's right. They both got started They were uh, as competing rival film critics for two different newspapers in Chicago, the Tribune and the Sun-Times. They both started in the late 60s. Uh, Ebert was 67 and Siskel was 69. And they worked kind of as these rivals all through the early 70s. They basically existed kind of in this heated rivalry that neither one almost like talked about. They would never speak. They would see each other all the time at screenings, at events, but they were so focused on beating the other at whatever it might be, getting the best interviews, writing better reviews. They just had this really intense negative chemistry, really. And then they were put together on this TV show, which started in 1975 at the Chicago public television station, WTTW. Yep, that's right. Channel 11. Channel 11 wasn't their idea, because if it was, neither one of them would have picked the other to do it with them, because they didn't want to do it with the other one. And they were there at PBS until the early 80s. Then they started doing syndicated shows and making lots of money doing it. And they went uh, right up until, unfortunately, when Gene Siskel passed away, which was in early 1999. So they were basically like a quarter century together as uh, once they really got going, really like, the, you know, kind of the preeminent, most famous film critics 
in the country. You know what? I had kind of forgotten. You reminded me when I was looking at the uh, the notes for the book. Yeah, he died. He was only 53 years old when he died in, in 1999. Yes. It's, it's kind of crazy. I mean, when I was a kid uh, and that happened, it was like very sad, obviously. It was, it was shocking. You know, he had been ill for about a year and everyone knew he was ill. But he was uh, Gene Siskel was a very private person. He didn't really talk about what was going on, how he was doing, what the even really what he was ill with, and um, you know had said uh, basically right when he decided to do his last show, which was in about January, late January of 1999, he had said he was going to take a break and recover, and he would be back at the start of the next season, like in September, and he only you know then he passed away like two weeks later. Um, it was really that quick and that sudden. And when I was a kid and that happened, I was upset, obviously. It was very sad. But I don't think I even really processed. He was only 53. Yeah. You know, he, to me at that time, when I'm like 18, he seems very old. Now I'm 43 and I'm going, it's absurd that he was so young. It was a real tragedy. It was yeah. terrible. It really um, was. Yeah. Well, yeah. look, I, you know, I do radio for a living. I've done radio my, my entire life. And sometimes you get good radio when you got people that are a little contentious. I do this thing. I did it earlier this afternoon called the Reardon Roundtable. It's a, a political hour on Friday afternoons. But I bring it up because one of the best things for me, and I think the audiences were attracted to this, and you write about their personal relationship. They didn't really like each other, but that didn't hurt the show because one of the best things about the show was seeing these two guys go at it against one another, right? That's exactly right. I mean, if they had liked each other and they didn't want to hurt each other's feelings, it would have been a boring TV show. And there's been many attempts to replicate the Siskel and Ebert formula, often by just sort of putting talented people together in a room. And it doesn't work. You know, you could have the two best film critics who are the best writers uh, on the show. But if, if they don't have that kind of spark, that chemistry, that desire to kind of defeat the other one in verbal combat, essentially, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't it doesn't have the same kind of thing. And there isn't a Siskel and Ebert on right now, but I do think, you know, the, the spirit of the show, I mean, it lives on in a lot of ways. But if you look around the cable dial and you look at sports and political talk, I think that's where you see the Siskel and Ebert influence. Is that model is is all over those kind of shows now where you yeah you bring two people together who don't agree maybe don't like each other don't get along and 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 you just let let them go at it it makes for compelling entertainment. So how Matt Singer did they change movies forever? How did Hollywood respond? We we have you know if you're, you're looking for a quick take on where critics are, you got Rotten Tomatoes these days. You can see the tomato meter. But you know um, as someone who did this for a long time, I know how important these reviews sometimes are to Hollywood and they like to put, look, there was probably nothing better back in the day than putting two thumbs up on a movie poster or in a commercial. Yeah, that was a huge way that they influenced things. Two thumbs up became really, it became basically one of the most valuable kind of taglines you could put on a movie poster or in a movie ad. I mean, any, if they said it, it usually wound up in a, in a commercial and an advertisement somewhere. Certainly, that was very influential, but I think um, the influence and the importance goes way beyond that, too. You know, there are filmmakers who, and I spoke to them for my book and interviewed them, and they would say, you know, I don't think I would have a career if not for Siskel and Ebert. When they found uh, up-and-coming filmmakers, little movies that they loved, they would recommend them, and they wouldn't just give them one two thumbs up. They would keep bringing them up over and over on the show. They would do those top ten lists. 
they would do episodes where they would talk about what they called buried treasures, where they would recommend something right. that that had been kind of fallen through the cracks. Or when home video and VHS and DVD got started, they would do episodes of like, here's what you should rent that you missed in theaters. And so through that sort of stuff, they were able to have a big influence of encouraging people to seek out movies and to, to encourage filmmakers to have, uh, you know, sort of better careers than they might have had otherwise. And there's a lot of other reasons. I, I wrote a whole book about it. But, yes, I, I think that their, <laughs> their influence is like it's very hard to encapsulate all of it in yeah. a, you know, 30-second soundbite. No, and I, and I completely understand that. So who did you have a chance to talk to that, you know, were, um, were affected or had some opinions? Who were some of the big names that you talked to for this book, Matt? Well, I mean, if you want, in terms of filmmakers, you know, I spoke with Errol Morris, who's a very famous documentarian now. He has a, a brand new movie coming out this fall. But when, um, you know, kind of Siskel and Eber came into his lives, he, he was he was struggling. He made this tiny movie called Gates of Heaven about pet cemeteries that hadn't really gone anywhere. It had played at a few film festivals and uh, didn't get a lot of response. And then they saw the movie and they put it on the show. And as he told me, they he said they changed my life. They gave me a career, and they gave me hope. <laughs> These are all things he said to me. Um, that 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 review, and then constantly talking about his movie, helped get the movie out there, turned it into a little hit, helped him get his next project. Financed. Well, you know, and and this, this is so perfect because Errol Morris, and I can you know I can't flash back to this moment, but I can tell you for sure, for a certainty, that it was Siskel and Ebert that put. In 1988, The Thin Blue Line, On My Radar, great documentary. And then one that I still cite, Matt, for, for this day, and by the way, very timely considering what's coming, you know, or going on in the world is The Fog of War from 2003, which is framed around the uh, Eisenhower speech about the military-industrial complex. So, yeah, movies like that, and, and that was one of the reasons, I don't know how, how you operate, but one of the reasons I always wanted to go on radio and TV is, and talk about films is I wanted to spread the good word about movies that I loved. Sadly, 90% of them, maybe maybe 95, are not very good. But, you know, when you find a movie that you really like that you think people should see and that you think people should see in the theaters, which is a little bit, you know, tougher these days, that was a fun thing to do. It really was. Absolutely. And, you know, when asked about, like, why do the show, that was always sort of Gene Siskel's number one response is that he loved when they found something like, uh, you know, an Errol Morris movie, that they could recommend and tell people to go see, and then people would go and turn the movie into a little hit. He would say that was the most rewarding part of the job was encouraging people to see something they wouldn't otherwise see yes. and then having them go, yeah, this is great. That was the best part of being a film critic. I kind of get chills just hearing you describe that. Here's an example of it from their show. I think it's been a pretty good year for the movies, actually, oh. as I look at this what's list interesting, of films and other ones that we could have mentioned. What's interesting to me is that we agreed on six, which is an all-time record for mm -hmm. us, and what that tells me is that the films that were good this year were very good and declared themselves. What it tells themselves. me is that your taste is getting better the longer you work with me. <laughs> I love that. There, you get a good uh, good, um, you know, kind of screen capture, if you will, of the tone of the show right there from Roger Ebert. Uh, they made a great documentary about Roger Ebert's life many years ago. Um, and I don't know if anyone's ever done that about Gene Siskel, Matt. Uh, there isn't. No, there isn't a documentary about uh, Gene. I certainly would be uh, interested to see one. Yeah. But um, yes. And, and Ebert, the, the movie was based on Ebert's memoir, Life Itself. Um, but, uh, the, you know, the book, it's not the Siskel and Ebert book. It's the Roger Ebert book. And uh, when I went back and looked at it before I started on this project, I realized, you know, there really isn't a lot in the book 
about Siskel and Ebert. It's only about three chapters. And so that was where I, I guess, had the uh, – I, I summoned the guts to, uh, to do a book of my own. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> needed to do it. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's necessary. I can't wait to read it. Matt Singer, he's the editor and film critic of ScreenCrush.com. The book is called Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. Matt, I'm so glad that somebody wrote this book, and it brings back some great memories. So thank you so much for joining me here this afternoon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I love that interview, and I love the uh, the passion that he brought and that Cisco and Ebert brought to movies. And Sue and I were talking a little bit in the in the studio, and I, I mentioned this during the interview. I started doing reviews on the radio in Columbia, Missouri. It was around about 1987 or 1988. Then I did it on the ABC TV affiliate in Columbia. Then I came here and did it on the radio when I worked with Frank Opinion back in the, mm-hmm. uh, in the 90s. Went to Milwaukee and did reviews on radio and TV. Came here, did reviews on X and then on Channel 4 for about 10 years on Great Day St. Louis. And the pandemic hit, and that kind of k- killed a couple of things. They shortened the show over at Channel 4. And part of it was I, I just lost the passion a little yeah. bit during the uh, pandemic. And here's part of the reason, uh, Sue. And it, it's because, and I've said this before, and I think I even said it this week, it's really vital for my mental sanity for me and some people can't do this those of you listening right now i understand that to separate my politics from my entertainment yeah but it it does become impossible at times and i'll give you an example i was watching because jane and and even my wife told me hey skip over the second season of the morning show on uh, apple tv plus and go to the third season john ham's in it pretty good do you watch that show i can't remember Uh -uh. so i i started it uh about 10 days ago and I just couldn't do it because of the politics. And there's like an abortion storyline and it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't my thing. And I know, I know there's always these types of influences, but I was. You know what? Life is short. Do you have time to watch something you don't want to hear about? No. No. Right. So it it was just one of those things. It kicked in. Same thing happened. I think I even mentioned earlier the show Shameless with William H. Macy, uh, which is a good show. But in about the sixth or seventh season, Emmy Rossum's character took a turn, and there was this big abortion-laden thing nope. that was very crass to me, and I thought, okay, I'm out of here. But you and I were talking, and you haven't seen it yet, and I really, I get frustrated because I've always been a bit of an outlier on films, and I was talking to you about Joe Williams. Joe Williams was the critic for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch for a long time, mm-hmm. and I mean, you probably couldn't pick someone who was more diametrically opposed to my politics and vice versa than that Joe would be Williams. true. But Joe and I had a lot of mutual respect for one another, and we were at screenings all the time together. You know, morning, evening screenings. I mean, there would be times where we'd see three, four, especially at awards time, you know, five, oh, five movies a week. And he died in a terrible car crash many years ago um, on his way to the drive-in, I, I believe, which is kind of sad. I'm but sorry but Joe that. was always so good at just standing his ground and not becoming part of groupthink. And I think critics fall into groupthink because— it's it's almost like when you um, you want to vote for the winning candidate, right? You want to be mm-hmm. able to tell people that you voted for the winning candidate, that you're on the right side of everything. So when when you have a film that may open in New York or L.A., they used to really open limited, and then they spread out to the rest of the country. And then you'd have, uh, you know, one of the big critics out there. You know, the name I was thinking about the other day was Michael Medved. Remember Michael Medved? Mm-mm. He's a conservative film critic. He's out in Seattle. He's oh. got his own talk show. He does politics as well. But the critics love to to tell audiences how much they love a film that they won't be able to see for like two or three months and yeah. they, they feel special about that. I can see it that. and you can't. Yeah, right. So there, there's there's psychology to all of this, and right? Group? And there's manipulation right. to all of it. Certainly. But the one that came to mind from, and I'm always a person that is um, 
very empathetic to people who have certain connections with entertainment that some of us can't relate to. Maybe it's music, right? Maybe it's something that happens in a movie. But with Barbie, I heard these accounts of people that were connecting to it. I even have a niece who said, man, she laughed, she even cried a little bit. I simply cannot relate to that. And when I watched Barbie, now I watched it on an airplane. Okay, on my computer, maybe on my iPad, maybe it just didn't How play can, as well. But I didn't think it was funny. I didn't think it was very imaginative. I, I thought the tone was dull. I didn't even think, you know, Ryan Gosling was that good. So it's one thing for that movie to become very, very popular and to have huge box office numbers because we've seen that before with movies that aren't that good. We see it in music all the time. Britney Spears comes to mind, people like that, right? Mm-hmm. Now, not that she's without talent, but you know what I mean, poppy songs and right. things that might not be that good, they take off and they you know, become sort of a life, they, they take on a life of its own. And that's, I think, what happened with Barbie because the marketing and then you got the critics that I mentioned that go and they interview the cast and they're so excited about it and they don't want to tell Ryan Gosling that they didn't like the movie. Right, they don't want to go in front of the cast and, and well, say yeah. that. Yeah. Which, by the way, it's it's funny because, gosh, who was it? Dave Franco, James Franco's brother, who is a pretty good actor in his own right. One time, I went in uh, to interview Dave Franco, and I said, "Hey, I like the movie a lot." It was, um, I can't remember the movie. Anyway, he goes, "Nah, you say that to everyone." And I said, I really don't. And, and here's what I told him. I said, when I sit down across from you, and a lot of times I'd be about four feet across like I am right now with an actor or a director, if I like the movie, I will tell you that I like the movie. Mm. Okay. If I didn't like the movie, I'm not going to sit down and say, Dave, I can't wait for the interview. The movie sucked, but let's go. Right? So I told him that. I'm like, look, I, I will, I'll be honest with you that I – and then it becomes difficult because – and this is where it gets tricky psychologically. You sit down in Hollywood, you interview the cast and the director, you come back, they package it up. What they did for me at Channel 4 is we put a little package together. And that would sort of be a feature of the movie, but it wouldn't be my review. But then you kind of have to be honest about the movie, too, and say, yeah. well, I sat down with the cast, but the movie's not that good. So uh, there, there's a lot of manipulation, especially this time of year. You know, Sue, I, I've showed you some of the things that the movie company. Companies still send me. I'm still on the list. They haven't it's, taken me off. It's close to blackmail. It is. It's, it well, really it's is. Bribes is what it is. Not bribes, blackmail. I'm sorry. But it's, You're right. they provide you with everything <clears throat> from goofy jackets, towels, sweatshirts. Uh, vinyls become very popular. They send soundtracks to movies oh, on vinyl, colored vinyl, and they want your vote for the organizations what do you do that you with belong all that to. Stuff? For me, I've thrown a lot of it out, but it's in boxes. Some of it's kind of cool, and I have framed artwork with, you know, <laughs> look, they'll, you they'll, they'll call you, and this is what's happened. Uh, hey, Mark, do you want a signed picture by Guillermo del Toro from Pinocchio framed? Why, yes, I do. Why don't you send that to me? And that's exactly what they did. Now, I'm only, um, think about it, here in St. Louis, film critic in St. Bottom of the food chain. Right. Imagine what happens with the bigger names. Right now, I will say this about Siskel and Ebert. Those guys, they didn't get into that nonsense, exactly. right? Exactly. They, they had to be above it. And I don't think we have that anymore, unfortunately. That's why I miss Joe Williams to this Six. day, because he was like that. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. 
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. We did an interview a few weeks ago. Laid on the line is his brand new book, A Backstage Pass to Rockstar Adventure, Conflict and Triumph, his band from Canada. He's back with us. I got through the book. We're going to talk about a few more things, some of them philosophical. How are you, Rick Emmett? Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I'm good. Uh, you know, it's a beautiful day here uh, in Canada where I live. And um, uh, I've, I've just gotten uh, getting over a cold. So, you know, if you can hear in my voice that I'm a little nasally, Eh, you know, whatever. It sounds I'm, okay. I'm in good spirits. Is it snowing yet in Burlington, Ontario? <laughs> no, no, it's it's a gorgeous fall day here. So, uh, you know, I can't wait to get finished with you so I can go sit outside and play some guitar. Oh, that is awesome. Well, let's, um, you know, I, I kind of left off the last time the chapter was um, heading into the music business. I don't want to talk about that, but there was one thing I did not ask you about in the last interview. And I, I this is a good way to start. Tell me about the time you got blown up at the Follow Your Heart video shoot, Rick. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you don't forget things like that. Uh, we were in, uh, I think it was Worcester or, or, or somewhere, that, that neck of the woods. Not Worcester, maybe Rhode Island or, or uh, I don't know, New England somewhere. One of those. And, yeah, and, and we, we played the, the gig in the arena, and then afterwards, the, the crew was going to be there. We were going to shoot this, this live concert video of, of the song. So they kept a certain chunk of the audience around, sort of made an announcement and said, hey, if you want to hang around. And, of course, they'd the crowd to try and find as many pretty young things as they possibly could to fill the front rows uh, across the, the barricade. And, um, yeah, so we started shooting this thing after everybody had left. And, um, I don't know, we got through about eight or nine takes or something. And then there was one where... I was standing right at the front lip of the stage, and the flash pots weren't supposed to go off. Uh, and the, in any case, we had this very elaborate flash pot system where the guy that ran it at the back, first there was uh, a switch to arm the entire system, and then there were individual switches for each uh, like flash pot unit that ran across two rows of these things. And so, um, long story short, the guy... All, he didn't realize that all the switches were already on, and then he threw the arm switch. This was during something where we were doing a take about a completely other thing. So all of the flashbots all across the front of the stage all blew off at once. <laughs> oh, and, my. Uh, you can imagine. It was just like a cannon going off beside your head, A, because of concussion powder that's in them, but B, the heat and the flash was incredible. I was standing so close, and of course, this is the days of big hair, MTV. My hair was full of, like, gel and, and hairspray, and so my hair started smoking. It didn't actually burst into flame, but it was definitely smoldering. And they, there's actually even footage 
they use a tiny little chunk of it in the Triumph documentary, and it shows me sort of, you know, running back from the fr- after this, you know, flash burnout on the on the screen. Then here comes this guy coming running out of the smoke and the, and, he, and his head's uh, smoking. Wow. And he, yeah. So yeah, that'll was, stick with you. Yeah, I was not happy. I got back to the dressing room and I was, I wanted somebody's head. You know, bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. <laughs> and um. <laughs> <laughs> but so then I had to have the barber do a little bit of a trim because you know the ends of there and boy did I my you know what uh, burning hair smells like oh not yeah. Good. yeah yeah not good not good yeah, at all. that's like good. a so so you know that anyways I, and then you know a little touch of makeup and you know calm down Rick everything's gonna be fine okay we've only got another hour and fifteen minutes of shooting to do like oh gee you know anyhow so that's the story well you survived it and I'm sure that uh, every once in a while there might be a little nightmare that involves that was like a Michael Jackson Pepsi commercial thing I mean that's that could have been a lot worse obviously yeah well and of course the fact that he'd already had had it happen to him. It, 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 you know, it wasn't like so. I didn't really make any newsreels anywhere because it was like, oh come on, we got we got Michael Jackson footage of him with his head smoking. What what do we care about some Canadian rock star? <laughs> yeah. But by the way, it was it was not the first time it had happened. Back in 1978, there had been a flash pot incident in a place called uh, it was in Nova Scotia somewhere, um, uh, Port Hawkesbury, Port Hawkesbury, Nova Scotia. Yeah, and in the arena there and. That one blew up right in my face, and I thought I had been blinded, but uh, it was just there was so much crusty powder it sort of stuck into my eyelashes and my eyes and stuff and but I lost eyebrows and I lost all the hair inside my nose uh, and and i so my there was nothing to stop. I had a cold, and there was nothing to stop from leaking and that was on the and first I, one that all that happened the one yeah. you know wow. Yeah. That was in 78, 1978. And I had to put makeup on for the for the next, you know, two weeks of, of tour dates <laughs> in order to hide these, you know, fiery red patches that were on the side of my nose and my forehead. And yeah. Wow. Laying on the line is the name of the book. Uh, Rick Emmett is my guest. So you write about the music business. The music business is very different than it was in the 1970s, the 1980s, uh, probably even than 10 years ago. Um, it's it's kind of a mixed bag. I, I like some of what's happened only because I think you have artists out there that might not have been heard that have the ability to put things out and stream them. But, you know, it, it probably happened, Rick, a long time ago where you, you have to tour and you have to gig to make money. You're not making money putting a record out anymore, right? Yeah, although, you know, uh, I mean, having said that, there was always a kind of a great divide that existed between recording artists who were making money by putting a record. I mean, even when I got a record deal, and we're talking 1970, you know, 77, 78, uh, only one in ten acts that got signed to, you know, roughly speaking, one in ten acts survived their first release in order to get a second, you know. So it was already bad odds. And, I mean, um, all of that stuff aside, there were some acts that would say, okay, I'm not even going to tour anymore. I'm just going to put out records and live on my royalties. But there were very few that could actually do that. And part of that was because the lure of, of touring and and then, of course, merch sales, that's another big thing that, you know, is, is an yeah. economic driver of how, how it all works. So it eventually got to the point over the years where now record companies didn't want to sign you just for a record deal. They wanted to sign you, they called them 360 deals, where they wanted everything. They wanted the merch rights. They wanted the, the you know, they wanted to be sort of your booking agent. They wanted to kind of step into the uh, the, the, the driving, the management kind of role of your career. 
Um, but that's not to say every act did it. But, you know, that was sort of you could smell the beginning of the end. And, of course, the beginning of the end was Sean Fanning's Pandora box oh, yeah. of, of Napster. And that really made it so that now it was like, whoa. It was, yeah. And as you say, no money to be made touring necessarily. Uh, uh, sorry, no, no money to be made from record sales. So, yeah, you had to tour and play gigs. But um, still, you know, people would tour because they could sell records off the stage. And um, streaming has now become something where, you know, a modicum of an income can happen. Yeah. You know, you can make a little bit, but certainly it's it's not enough. You You have to cobble it together. But the truth of the matter is that for all musicians – it always was a case of you know, cobbling it together that, you know, a lot of the musicians that, you know, for example, jazz guys, they're, they're, it's not a big part of the market. They're probably, you know, the most sophisticated of all musicians. And yet, you know, they would have to probably be a teacher during the day, you know, maybe play a wedding gig every now and then in order to be, you know, paying their rent and, and, and covering their costs. So it was always a question of having to cobble it together. You, you mentioned the file sharing in Napster. You became a bit of a leader in Canada on that topic, didn't you? Well, certainly I was on the Songwriters Association of Canada for uh, several years. And um, in my tenure there, you know, that was when, you know, the feces was hitting the fan, as they say. And um, <laughs> it was, it, you know, th- there was this thing about trying to get uh, – you know the the uh, the big telecoms and and the folks that were running the the you know providing the internet to folks to say okay well you know you need to siphon off a little chunk of that to help uh, you know pay back the musicians for the fact that people are just you know taking their songs for free and you're making it easy for them to do it hey you guys that manufacture cell phones you're making it really really easy for people to walk around with libraries right. of thousands and thousands of songs in their phones. That they, that they didn't pay for, you know. So you, sh- you should give us a little something off of that. And uh, that was a – we were like, um, you know, uh, tilting at windmills. <laughs> Don Juan, <laughs> tilting at windmills. Like that was never going to happen, you know. And why would they – they didn't have to. And the governments certainly – and I'm talking not just of the United States and Canada, but all over, the whole free world. Governments were afraid to do it. They didn't want to have to take on – you know, what they perceived to be these folks that were providing an infrastructure that was, you know, important to culture. So, you know, um, anyhow, I, I, I got to the point where I went, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to fight a losing battle anymore. I'm just going <laughs> to go on my merry way. Well, it was that was an interesting time. Obviously, a lot of transition with where we are today. Uh, you you wrote in here. I guess you, you put a list. I thought this was interesting. The book does get philosophical. You offer advice to you know people about maybe going into the music business. Uh, you wrote a list of ten tips for for people that I guess appeared in a different publication that's in this book. One of the ones that I liked is three sixty seven is one of the secrets of life. Explain that. That resonates with me as a guy who does a three hour radio show. And if I don't at least bat three sixty seven, I'm not very happy with myself. Yeah, well, if you're batting 367, buddy, you know, you're the world's all-time champ. I mean, you make it to the Hall of Fame. It's the lifetime batting average of Ty Cobb. That's right. And, and, and Ty Cobb was the greatest hitter ever in the history of Major League Baseball. But if you can hit 300, you'll probably get in the Hall of Fame. So, you know, 3 out of 10 is fantastic. You know, 2.5 out of 10, you should be pretty happy. 
you know. But of course, if you know, if it's only two out of ten, uh oh, <laughs> you're in trouble. Now, <laughs> no, I you know? know, and that's so, where I, I find myself in trouble. But you know, people who do what you do for a living, and maybe too, I'm not trying to compare myself, but when when you're on the public, you wrote this. I thought this was very interesting, and I can relate with it, Rick. You said that the private person is insecure and knows it deep down, but the public person can find his brave face and perform, remaining in control of his marketable skills. He can hide away insecurity behind a mask. Mr. Springsteen calls that the magic trick to a certain extent, but that's that's something maybe the audiences don't even appreciate how, how much insecurity there might be with the artists that they watch, right? Oh, and in fact, I mean, I think somewhere in the book I say, you know, when, when you're at award shows and you're in the green room, there's just so many damaged people there because they're all, you know, everybody kind of takes up show business in a way they're trying to compensate for something you know the the fact that their mother or father you know didn't give them enough attention you know uh, or the fact that they were getting squeezed by siblings left and right you know i mean there's just so many reasons why damaged people decide okay i i got to make a show of myself <laughs> i you know i need to become the class clown you know th- these things they come out of damage more than they come out of uh i mean i suppose there's a certain natural instinct that uh, folks have or a combination of them that leads them to uh you know if you've got enough talent and when i was a little kid People would say, "Oh man, Rick, you, you you can draw. Your pictures are so interesting, and you're you're so talented at this." And then I would sing in the choir, school choir, church choir, and people would say, "Oh wow, you've got this gift, you know." So if you've got gifts, there is an an inclination to to say, "Well, I, I guess I'm supposed to share them," because you've got teachers and parents and people that are you know patting you on the back, so your head is starting to swell, <laughs> and they're going, "Yeah, yeah, you know, you should be sharing these gifts." And so you grow up thinking, I guess I should share them. Um, But, you know, as an adult, you know, you'd think you'd become a little more secure, a little more adjusted, a little more. But now we've made this kind of lifetime, uh, uh, I don't know, handshake deal with with our with our shortcomings and and our and our, our, our bad habits and our strange things that we carry around inside. And then it's like now we're addicted to this. Now we kind of have to yeah, get up into yeah. into the spotlight and do this thing. And then, as you say, you, you you're kind of going, yeah. Well, you know, I got to keep setting the bar higher and higher and higher. I, I, you know, I I need to accomplish more. I I need I need to be better. I, and that becomes a real difficult one. You know, where how do you sort of stand looking in the mirror before the show and say to yourself, you're all right, you're cool, just do what you've got to do. Just take care of business, you know. Now, if you, back to the baseball metaphor, the coaches and managers, like they stand there and they say to their players, look, I'm not asking you to do something that you didn't do yesterday. I'm asking you to do your job. That's all I'm asking you to do. And there's a famous story of, you know, one of those grumpy old Casey Stengel or somebody like that. It wasn't Casey, but it was some old baseball manager. And, you know, the the home run hitter comes back to the dugout and all the guys are giving him high fives and stuff. And the manager doesn't even blink, doesn't even step in his way. And they said, how come How come you never give the guy? He goes, he's he's doing his job. Yeah. That's his job. Yeah. That's what we pay him to do. We exactly. pay him to hit home runs. So, you know, I, I, I'm not going to fawn all over him just because he's doing yeah. what he's supposed to do. So that. we tend to, we, you know, I think talented people, uh, performers, we we do tend to do that to ourselves too. We kind of go like, well, you know, I'm I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to make a big hoo ha about myself. But the, I, I I do think f- to be healthy, 
there have to be those moments where you say to yourself, you know, hey, you're doing great, man. You're all right. You know, and and just love what you do. That that's a big part of it. I I keep coming back to that Absolutely. one in the book it's so process. Important. Yeah, I tell kids yeah. that. I mean, on the rare occasion that I have, you know, some junior high or high school kids, and I'm I'm very lucky, Rick, because I started this radio thing when I was 15 years old, mainly out of my love of music, and I real. I realized, I think he told you this last, I had no talent when it came to playing music, but I wanted to do something in music. So then I dabbled in the record business, but mainly, you know, music radio before I did talk. But I, right. I just, I mean, if I'm not having fun, I feel people sit in offices and they are on phone calls all the time and there's fluorescent lighting. I, that just wasn't me. No, it's still not me. And I love that conversation. We did two of them with Rick Emmett from Triumph. The book, by the way, and I'm going to tell you as soon as I don't read a lot of books. Um, I read that book. And it's really baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out of market regular season game on your favorite streaming devices anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi view mode and catch up with in game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre and post game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. And he gets wow, I'm impressed. And I loved it. Lay it on the line. I can't remember if I mentioned this today. This is the final show of the year, Sue. What? I know. It is shocking. Breaking news. That makes this, <clears throat> brace yourself, the oh, final, no. yeah, oh yeah, the final audio cut of the day of 2023. Stand by. Playback ready. Now, the audio cut of the day. So, here's what's interesting. I don't think you'd have an appreciation for this as much as some people in the audience. And if you don't know a lot about NFL football, you might. But this is a little broader than that because you have a Fox Sports radio host that's being accused of racism over the dumbest thing ever. So, this is a woman named Monsa Bolaños. And here's what she said. I'll just kind of start with a little bit of what she was saying. She was talking about Lamar Jackson, the quarterback of the Baltimore Ravens. Perhaps maybe the favorite for the Super Bowl right uh, now. Yeah. They're having a hell of a year, right? I don't think Lamar Jackson's the most valuable player in the National Football League. No, I don't. This is absurd. I, I, what are you talking about? Hey, y'all are absurd. Listen, I, this sounds like I don't like Lamar Jackson, and that's not what it is at all. I think Lamar Jackson has come out and has become a better quarterback this year. He is doing better than I thought throwing the ball and just – you know, being the quarterback, especially after losing his favorite target. So that's not the part that got her into trouble. I was going to say. I, next part. All right, so that, that sounds, but let, let me see if you, you might not pick up on it, but I'll just play you what she said. Uh, you don't think Lamar Jackson's the most valuable player? That is not the one. Wait a second. Hold on here. I'm supposed to have two different. Here we go. I want my quarterbacks to be quarterbacky, And to me, Lamar Jackson's just a great athlete, and he's done a really good job, and he had a great game against the 49ers. Prisoners of the moment, he is not the MVP. All right, so did you hear it? Prisoners of the moment? No, no, no. I, I don't get okay, it. Okay, one more time. I want my quarterbacks to be quarterbacky. That's it, right there. What, what's the matter feel, with that? They feel like her using the term quarterback. What is that? That's racist because, look. Racist? There, well, there there have been things that, I'll give you a little background here. There have been things in the past where you had some folks that suggested that Lamar Jackson wasn't smart enough to be quarterback. And there were people that made some connections to race. But, well, but she let didn't. me just tell you something. He should not be MVP. You've got a lot of different quarterbacks. Now, Lamar Jackson, the passing yards are a little uh, misleading because he's 15th in the league in passing yards, but he's got five touchdowns and 786 yards rushing. She's making the case for uh, 
you know, him not to be the MVP because essentially he should not be the MVP. But it doesn't matter because someone gets a hold of that. And this is again, Sue, I talked about this earlier. It's social media. People go on Twitter. Well, or, I'm sorry, X, formerly Twitter, and they say, what does quarterbacky mean? I hope it's not what it thinks. And they put, you know, memes of George Floyd and, and other things up there. So that's essentially well, that's how people Well, that's ridiculous. Read. Well, I, I love the fact that she responded, too, on Twitter. And she said, I say quarterbacky, and I'm racist. Most passing yards by a quarterback so far. And she listed Tua, Brock Purdy, Jared Goff, Dak, C.J. Stroud. Now, again, you do have to put the rushing touchdowns into the mix, but— I mean, even then, Jared Goff of the Lions is probably a better quarterback for MVP. We'll see what happens. Sue, we're wrapping up 2023. Oh, Mark. It was a good year. It really was. I think it was a good year. We missed Fred and Abby this week. I'm going to go out with a little Auld Lang Syne. We will see you Tuesday. We'll all be back together on Tuesday afternoon. Enjoy the weekend. Let's go, Mizzou. Cotton Bowl game tonight down in Arlington. Let's get a win. Catch anything you missed today by getting the show podcast at 971talk.com. talk.com We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.